Well, uh, why the, while the people are passing the buckets around, I figured I'd give a, a quick introduction. So for those of you who don't know, my name is Casey, and I'm actually, hey, one of you. I think that's my wife, maybe. I don't know. Totally wasn't. Never mind. <laughs> so my name is Casey, and I'm the co-pastor of Forerunner Church. And in case you don't know, Forerunner Church is the youth and young adult ministry here at Newbridge. And um, I say I'm the co-pastor because I have another pastor who will be with us next week preaching the message at the 5 p.m. service. Uh, and his name is Jamie Pridgen, and together uh, we get to co-pastor. And it's the greatest thing that's uh, ever happened to me in ministry is not having to do ministry alone. Amen? It's, it's super, super awesome. Um, so listen, I've been, I've been doing this for six years now, six years, full-time vocationally. What I have done is I've ministered to young people for probably 50, 60 hours a week. And, uh, it's been one of the greatest joys of my life. Uh, but, uh, over these six years, I've found something that's, that's quite fascinating has happened to me. My preaching style has changed. When I first started, I was like this 23 year old arrogant guy, just shouting my opinion and trying to back it up with scripture. Over the course of these six years, I have since changed. And now when I preach, I feel much more like uh, perhaps a doctor or a physician. Uh, I have the great honor because I'm a co-pastor and I don't have to carry all the preaching load. I get to spend a lot of time ministering to our students and doing one-on-ones with all of our young people. And what I find is uh, my preaching style has changed so much so that like when I meet with people, I can kind of pinpoint all the, the symptoms that people have in my little church and in my little congregation. I take them back to the Lord. I pray and I go, okay, God, how do we want to address this? And my messages become more of a, a remedy or a prescription for maybe a sickness that perhaps they're dealing with, right? So that's typically how I preach at Forerunner. I say that because tonight I feel a little out of sorts. I feel a little disadvantaged. I feel like I can't cheat like I usually do at Forerunner because I don't know any of you guys. And so I really wrestled with the Lord. I'm like, Lord, what am I supposed to say to these people? I don't know what they're dealing with. I don't know what they're struggling with. I don't know their stories. And uh, here's basically what I resolved in my heart is I'm just going to preach to you as if you're a Forerunner. Cool. Now I'm going to preach to you as if you're a young adult struggling with the same things that our young adults are struggling with and hope that it lands and hope that you get ministered to. Okay. So if you've never been to Forerunner Church, perhaps you're a parent and you have a high school student, maybe you're a college student and you've never been to Forerunner. What you're going to get tonight is basically what we would give somebody if they came to our young adult church on Wednesday nights. So um, here we go. Let me just pray and uh, we'll, we'll get started. Lord, we love you. I love you so much. And I'm so honored to be here. Lord, I pray that you would, uh, man, you just be with me right now, that I would just sense your presence, man, right now. Holy Spirit, I yield to you. I yield my, my mouth to you. I yield this sermon to you. I ask that you move. God, ultimately, this is about you, and I ask that you have your way. You're so kind, and you're so good to me. I love you, Jesus. Amen. 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 So tonight, we're starting a little mini-series titled The Advent. The Advent, it's a two-parter. Like I said, my co-pastor, Jamie, gets to preach the the second part of this message next Sunday night. And uh, when they first pitched the idea to me, I was was like, yeah, sure, I definitely want to do that. I would love to preach on the first coming of Jesus. That sounds great. And I didn't really think it through until about a week later, and I realized, oh, my gosh, how am I supposed to fit all of the first coming of Jesus in one sermon? That sounds miserable, right? There's so much to be said when you start talking about the first coming of Jesus. And so as I prayed and as I, fought, as I sought the Lord about it, what I, what I came down to is ultimately the first coming, the, the first advent, if you will, is ultimately the gospel message. It's the gospel message. It's the good news. And so tonight, I'm actually going to preach to you the gospel. It's going to be great. I promise. Lord willing. Actually, I don't promise, but I hope it's going to be great. But listen, listen. Often, we just move very quickly past the gospel, right? Often, Christians don't preach to themselves the gospel because they've kind of moved past that. They've already had the salvation experience. And so I'm going to ask a question. Or I'm, going to, I'm going to answer a question that you're probably asking, or maybe you're asking, is why on earth would I even preach the gospel to a bunch of people who are already saved? And I want to give you the answer with Bible. Is that cool? 
So we're going to go to Colossians chapter 1. Uh, this is, these are verses 21 through 23. Uh, I love the book of Colossians. It's just, it's so rich, man. Um, this is verses 21. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. So I'm, asking, or you, I'm, I'm answering the question, why would I preach the gospel to a bunch of people who are saved? Because Paul did. Matter of fact, you can look at any one of Paul's letters and you will find that he almost always starts with a recount and a retelling of the gospel story. Every time Paul is writing, he is writing to born-again Christians, right? He's writing to the church, and he always feels the need to remind them of the gospel. And the reason I think we see is, is right here in Colossians. We're going to do a quick little exegesis here, um, and I want, you to, I want you to just bear with me. Um, this is what he says in this message, in this, in this verse. He says, look, he goes, Jesus died because you were a sinner, and he died to reconcile you. And present you before the Father, holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. Holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. Now, often we just move really quickly past that. I want you to understand something. Beyond reproach. Do you know what that means? That before the Father, you are above any accusation thrown your way. Have you ever met anybody who's above reproach or beyond reproach? That if somebody were to accuse them of something, you'd immediately be like, I'm not even going to entertain that thought. I know them. That's how the Father sees you and me. For those of us who are born again in Christ Jesus, we are seen as holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. He doesn't even entertain an accusation thrown against you. If. There's a big if. And we see it right here in the very next verse. Paul almost makes a qualifying statement for that. And he actually says, it seems like there's two almost conditions that we have to meet in order to be seen as holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. This is verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and number two, not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you've heard. So Paul seems to be making this correlation here between you have to stay in the faith and you can't move away from the hope of the gospel with that's how you're presented holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. Now, the first one makes a whole lot of sense. The first little um, uh, what's the word? Uh, condition, if you will, kind of makes sense. We have to remain in the faith because we understand that we're saved by grace through faith. That's like our entrance into this amazing atoning work of Jesus. But he doesn't just stop there. He says specifically, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel. What does that mean? And not moved away from the hope of the gospel. As I've prayed about it, I think it means two things in particular. Number one is that we wouldn't add anything as our hope to the gospel. And that we wouldn't make the gospel less good news than it actually is. All right? Now listen, that's, that's huge, right? Not losing hope that the gospel is as good as it says and not putting your hope in something other than or addition to the gospel. That's what it means to be moved away from the hope of God. Now, here's why I'm saying this. Remember, I told you I've been doing this six years and I don't have to spend all of my time doing pulpit ministry. I get to minister to people one-on-one. -on -one. Well, I have found this... Uh, incredible thread, this quite frightening and alarming thread in the body of Christ today. As a matter of fact, it makes me far more nervous than, say, the LGBT movement infiltrating the church. And do you know what it is? The more I meet with Christians, the more I realize that people are subtly moving away from the hope of the gospel. And that is ultimately the root of all the other issues that we have going on within the church. 
and I talk to Christians, listen, I've, I've always said, like, I'm not an evangelist. I always tell people, like, yeah, my job, I'm more on the equipping the saints for ministry kind of thing, right? I've, I've never been one that's like, oh, I'm going to go and seek and save the lost, right? Like, that's just not my thing, right? I appreciate those who do it, but I find myself more often than not in my discipleship meetings with people just reminding them of the hope of the gospel. I find myself doing the work of an evangelist far more than I find myself doing the work of a pastor, and it's fascinating. I'm telling you, I have this like large plethora of data. Pastor Justin and I, we, we joke often because we feel like broken records. I feel like everybody that I meet with, I'm telling them the same thing over and over again. I can stack like three or four meetings every hour and a half. They can all have massively different sin issues and I'm gonna tell them the same thing. It, it just, it happens. I'm going to remind them of the hope of the gospel. And it's, it's terrifying. And it's terrifying for this reason right here, because if we move away from the hope of the gospel, the farther we get from the hope of the gospel, the farther we get from our first love. Yeah. That's the thing that got you. That was your first love. Jesus was your first love, and he wooed your heart through the good news. And what we do as Christians is we get saved, we hear the gospel, we rejoice, and then we move on. And we almost graduate from the gospel and like kind of put it over here as like an elementary thing. Perhaps we call it the milk and not the meat. Not realizing that it's the gospel that you were saved by. You were saved by hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. So tonight, here's what I'm going to do. Remember, I'm tasked with, uh, I'm tasked with talking about the first coming of Jesus. Tonight, my goal is to share with you the gospel. You room of born-again Christians, I want to share with you the gospel, but I want to remind you what it was like when you first met Jesus. As I'm talking about this, man, I want you to remember what it was like. Some of you have a testimony like me, man, and you were wrenched out of darkness and thrown into the marvelous light. Some of you, you remember what it was like to be lost and broken. You remember what it was like to be miserable and dead in your sin and to be a slave to every lustful desire and prideful desire that you had? You remember that. And you remember how marvelous it was to finally be accepted and loved. I remember when I got saved, there was a song that came on that just, at, it just so perfectly described how I felt. And it was, I finally found where I belong. And I want you to think about that. I want you to think about what it was like before you had your head crammed full of theology. I love theology. Theology is really good. But so often we exchange the gospel and we just, we start pumping ourselves with a bunch of theology. And before we know it, we become the Judaizers found in Galatians. I want you to remember what it was like. And, and so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you a layout of, of how we're going to tackle this thing here. Um, I got I to gotta get the life of Jesus in here, the first coming of Jesus. And so I'm going to hit five life circumstances of Jesus. Five highlighted points in Jesus's life. And we're going to combat in every circumstance a lie that you might believe about the gospel. It's a lie that perhaps you didn't buy into when you first got saved. But the, the farther you've gotten away from the gospel, the farther you've gotten away from your salvation experience, perhaps you've started to buy into this. Now this, again, I, I'm preaching to you as if I'm preaching to Forerunner. This is what everybody deals with, man. This is stuff that like I've dealt with. These are things that I'm constantly having to remind people of. So I'm basically bringing you into my discipleship one-on-ones with people. Amen? All right, here we go. There's going to be a lot of Bible, uh, so, so bear with me. Uh, why don't you guys go over to Hebrews chapter two? Hebrews chapter two. Oh, I have it actually right here. All right. The first event that we're going to look at in the life of Christ is the incarnation. The incarnation. Now, like a good preacher, I have lots of uh, alliteration and words that rhyme together. So we're going to hit the incarnation. We're going to hit the desperation. We're going to hit the declaration and so on and so forth. They all rhyme so you can remember. But right now we're talking about the incarnation. And rather than go to the normal uh, Christmas passage, right, where Jesus is in the womb and he jumps when he sees Mary or Elizabeth and John and the Baptist, all that kind of stuff. I want to go to Hebrews. Incar the incarnation is one of the most, I feel like, uh, foundational. 
don't know, foundational truths of who Jesus is. And I feel like we just brush past it because we have a whole, se- we have a whole season about it, which is Christmas. I'm going to read this. This is Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. And then we're going to jump over to Hebrews chapter 4. Um, Therefore, he had, this is Jesus, had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted and that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. And this is over in chapter four. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. (laughs) There's a reason I chose this passage as he's talking about Jesus, our high priest. When we're dealing with the incarnation, what we're actually dealing with is the qualifying factor for Jesus to be our high priest towards us. Now, he was already qualified because he's Jesus, but he took it a step further and he says, I'm going to qualify myself before people and show people that I'm actually a really great high priest, that I'm, I'm going to subject myself to human flesh, and I'm going to become a baby, and I'm going to go from baby to boy, and I'm going to go from boy to man, and I'm going to deal with all the awkward transitions in between. I'm going to be tempted in all the ways like they are so that they can look at me and not be afraid, but know that I'm gonna give them compassion for I can sympathize with their weakness. It's absolutely amazing. When you stop to think about all that Jesus probably went through as a man, he he was tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin. But you know what else he did? You think about this. Let's just use use your imagination for a second. Jesus was considered an illegitimate child. Have you ever thought about that? You can imagine Mary, before her wedding day, all of a sudden shows up pregnant. Before her wedding day. Joseph's like, I'm not the dad. And they come up with this story. Uh, Well, I know this sounds a little crazy, but the Holy Spirit actually conceived this child. Can you imagine the ridicule that Jesus would have incurred over such a, a, a crazy circumstance? Can you imagine what it was like for Mary? They were probably not very well accepted into their culture. Mary probably carried a scarlet letter her entire life. And I can assure you, Jesus was probably quite bullied because of it. Jesus, the bastard son of Mary. Can you hear him? Jesus, he understands what it's like to be right and to be accused of being wrong. He knows what it's like to be legitimate and accused of being illegitimate. He knows what it's like to live in complete and total righteousness, never sinning and yet be called unrighteous and a heretic. Jesus probably knew what it was like to be bullied. He knew what it was like to be man. Listen, I always think about this and it sounds kind of silly, but we almost, when we look at like the, when we look at the incarnation and we look at God becoming man, we often think about him as like the stoic, pious, like, you know, God man, right? And he was a God man, absolutely, but he was man nonetheless. And so all of the things that you deal with and all of the feels, or all the things that you're were pulling on your flesh, he felt all of them. He's Jesus. He didn't sin, but he certainly felt all of them. And he did that just to show you that he's not the high priest to be feared, but instead he's the high priest to run to. And it's great news. Like I said, he went above and beyond and qualified himself before us to be our high priest. So now, now this is why this is like super important. Remember I told you we're gonna combat a lie on each one of these, right? Here's the first lie that I see that most Christians believe, that God doesn't understand our frailty that God actually doesn't understand our frailty. And this is how this probably takes place in your mind. You sin, you mess up, your flesh kicks in, and you immediately think, we immediately think that God's up there going, I just don't understand them. How could he possibly sin against me? After everything I've done for him, he knows better. I thought he loved me. I don't understand. How could he possibly do this? Isn't that how we feel most of the time? That's not the gospel. 
Jesus became man specifically that we didn't have that thought because that thought makes us run away from the Lord. He says this, oh, I totally understand. I remember what it was like. I remember what it was like. Now, here's the the interesting thing. I told you Jesus never sinned, right? And so there is a unique aspect of humanity that we might be tempted to think that Jesus doesn't understand. As a born-again Christian, when you sin, you know that feeling? You know that shame, that guttural sense of regret and anguish that you have? So Jesus didn't feel that because he was completely obedient. He didn't have that until the cross. It wasn't just the wrath of God poured out. He took all of your sin and all of your shame. All of your sin and all of your shame. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and now sits at the right hand of the Father. Now listen to me. Jesus understands the pull. Jesus understands the shame. And he pulled the impossible out of his pocket and had never sinned and yet felt the entirety of shame. And so this is really important for you because some of you guys, when you sin, you mess up. You don't want to go to the father because you think he's up there tearing his hair out and he's not. Instead, he's going, oh, I totally get it, man. I can totally sympathize. Oh, I get it. I'm so sorry. I hate that sin overcame you. I hate it. I know that it produces death in you. I'm so sorry. I hate that for you. And it's completely changed the way that I interact with the Father. Because I used to, when I did sin, and guess what, I'm going to be honest with you, I still sin, don't like it, don't want to. But if we say we have no sin, we make him a liar, right? When I mess up, when I sin, I used to not ever want to go to the Lord. I used to to put one at him. I'm like, oh, crud. I'm out. You guys remember that? That's what Adam did. He ran away and he hid from the Lord. That's what sin makes most believers do. But we don't get to do that anymore because we have a merciful and faithful high priest who understands. He was made like his brethren in all ways and was as tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin. So we get to go to the high priest and be like, dude, I totally know that you understand. That doesn't mean we're flipping and we're casual about our sin, but we shouldn't be afraid of the Lord either. Not like that. It's changed the way that I interact with the Father And it's actually changed the way that I interact with people. So my job, a little unique to yours, um, I'm a pastor. And so um, people often, for whatever reason, confuse being a pastor with being a priest. I'm not a priest. But you know what people still feel the need to do to me all the time? Confess their sin. All the time. I'm okay with it, I suppose. But I'm not your priest. Just FYI. Right, And so people always feel like they just have to confess their sin to the pastor. And it's like, okay, uh, here we go. And I used to get some doozies, man. Let me tell you what, I'm like from the world. I was like a hardcore drug addict, gang member, all that kind of stuff. And there are sins today that I didn't even know were possible. I couldn't even think of in my wicked imagination 10 years ago. Right? And people will drop doozies on me. And, I'm, and I used to be like, kind of judgy, not going to lie. I used to be like, how could you do that? I mean, that's nuts. And people could read it on my faces and you'd see it instant discouragement. Because for me or for them in that, in that moment, I'm like a stand-in Jesus. And when I got a hold of this truth that, that Jesus is the merciful and faithful high priest because he's been tempted in all the ways as we are and he can understand us and he can sympathize with us, all of a sudden, I, I, when I started changing the way that I related to the Lord, I started changing the way that I interact with people. And when they confess their sin, now I have a new rule. You know what my rule is? So if you confess your sin, this is the first thing I'm going to tell you. I'm going to ask you, are you okay? Man, I know that feeling. You feel like you let the world down. You feel like you let the Lord down. You feel like you just, you're just kicking yourself all the time. I know the shame. I know the regret. Are you Okay. Dude, and like nine times out of 10, people just lose their minds. They start weeping and wailing right there. That's what the father's like. Are you okay? I hate this for you. If my little girl sinned, felt horrible about it, and came to me, you really think the first thing I'm going to do is be like, how could you? I gave you everything. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to hold her. I'm like, I'm so sorry, baby girl. We're going to face the consequences together. 
the incarnation. It's beautiful. God became man just to identify with you. It's fantastic. Then something else amazing happens in Jesus' life, but this time it's like 30 years later. There's a, a kind of a weird thing that happens in the Gospels. You go from like Jesus is like baby, there's like one or two accounts of like him being a little child, but you don't really get much. He pretty much does nothing for 30 years. Then he pops back up in Matthew chapter 3, a grown man and ready to be baptized. And I've always thought it was incredibly fascinating to me that we don't hear of any massive um, kingdom advancement in those first 30 years of Jesus's life. Do you know why we don't hear about it? Probably because there wasn't any. Jesus probably spent 30 years loving God, loving people, honoring his mother and father, and living in total obscurity. Being faithful in the little things, probably not casting out demons, probably not healing the sick, probably not raising the dead. And then he comes on the scene later, 30 years, Matthew chapter 3, and we all know it. I'm ready to be baptized. John disputes with him a little bit. He eventually relents. And Jesus gets baptized. And now we're, we're moving from the incarnation into the declaration. Jesus gets baptized. The heavens open. A light shines upon Jesus. The Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove. And you all know the rest. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Isn't that fascinating? That that statement, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, comes after 30 years of nothing. In other words, when I read that statement, to me, that is much better suited for like when Jesus is about to give up his spirit on the cross. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He's been obedient to me in every possible way, even unto death. He's cast out devils. He's healed the sick. He's raised the dead. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That's not where that is of the story. Jesus did nothing except get baptized. And God makes this declaration. I'm so well pleased with this guy. Now here's the deal. Um, salvation or uh, baptism for us is kind of like symbolic for salvation, right? So when you see baptism in here, we're talking salvation, but we all know Jesus didn't need salvation, right? Because he's Jesus. So then why would he get baptized? He got baptized to be the example for us, right? We all, we all comfortable with that? Okay. This serves as a wonderful example for us as Christians, that when we give our life to the Lord, when we make the public declaration of faith, God comes down and says, this is my beloved son, this is my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased. It's so holy. It's so wonderful. I'm gonna tell you the lie. This is the lie that most Christians believe. That in the sight of the Lord, your salvation is secondary to your good works. So many Christians they may, not, they may not quite say it like that, but they live that way. That in the Lord's eyes, their salvation, their yes to the Lord, isn't worth as much as all the kingdom advancing work that they can do. And this is so important. Listen, guys, this will set you free. This will set you free if you let it. You, if you are a born-again Christian, you've already accomplished the greatest thing you could ever accomplish on earth. You've already won. You said yes. Everything from this point forward pales in comparison. It pales in comparison. And I meet people often that they get saved and now they're like, man, I gotta do this and I gotta do this and I gotta do this and I gotta do this. And they actually think that if they do these things, God will be more pleased with them than when they said yes in the first place. Do you have any idea how precious your yes is to the Lord? Against all odds, you said yes when you had the entire kingdom of darkness wrenching your soul. You said yes. You said, I choose Jesus. And God's so pleased with that. And he would say, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He says there's a party thrown for you in heaven when you come back to the Lord. When you come home, there's a party thrown. When you cast out the demons, it doesn't say that. When you heal the sick, it doesn't say that. 
And it's so freeing and it's so light to know, oh, at this point, I'm just competing for extra credit. You've already scored 100 on the test. Everything else you do pales in comparison. I'm not, I'm not saying that what you do doesn't matter. But at the end of the day, you can go out and you can cast out devils and you can heal the sick and you can pray for everybody and start a revival in your school or your work. And God's still like, oh, man, that's so great. But you said yes. No, that's great. But you said yes to me. You love me. You chose me. I chose you first, but you said yes in return. And he's enamored by that. And you can eventually get to the place where you're like King Solomon. King Solomon, if you guys know the story, um, richest, wisest, probably done the arguably the greatest thing that you could ever do for the kingdom of God, the greatest good work ever. You know what Solomon did? Solomon built a temple. Solomon actually made a dwelling place for God on earth. He made the temple, and at the end of his life, this is what he says. He writes this book called Ecclesiastes, which is the most encouraging, discouraging book ever. And he starts it with this, vanity of vanities, it's all vanity. In other words, he says this, it's all meaningless, everything. And he goes on to describe for several chapters why everything is actually meaningless. And he says this, it's so fascinating. He says, what new work is there under the sun that man can do? The sun goes up, the sun sets, the rivers will flow. In other words, he says, the earth's going to keep on spinning. But it's the statement where he says, what new work is there that under the sun that man can do? He did a new work. Think about that. Solomon actually did a new work. And he still, at the end of his life, goes, what new work is there under the sun? In other words, he's going, yeah, that's great and all. But in summary, and he ends the book like this, fear God and keep his commands. He counted not just the sinful things that he did, but also the kingdom things that he did, all his rubbish. He said, at the end of the day, this is the most important thing. And it's, it's incredibly freeing because some of you guys really, you feel like God moved past your salvation. Like he's like, yeah, I know you're saved, but now what are you going to do? That's not how God works. And Jesus would actually echo this sentiment. Some of you, I can feel you, you're like, uh, I don't know if that's true. Jesus actually echoed the sentiment. If you look in Luke chapter 10, remember what happens? Jesus sends all the disciples out two by two and they come back and they're like, Jesus, even the, even the, the spirits are subject to us. Even the demons flee from us. And Jesus is like, yeah, do not rejoice that the spirits are subject to you. Rejoice that your name's written in the book of life. There is no greater miracle than your salvation. And we move past it and we lose the wonder from it. God wrenched you out of darkness and thrusted you into his marvelous light. Listen, what he did on the cross was absolutely wonderful. And we're going to talk about that. I love, I love the cross. But listen, the cross bought you access. It didn't force its access upon you. And so while he still, while he died on the cross for your sins, he went a step further. And he won your heart that you may gain access by the cross. When I think, we sing this song, um, uh, Resurrecting or Resurrection, I don't know. It's like, your name, your name is victory. Your name is victory. And I often like to think about the lengths that Jesus went through to win my heart. All the times that Jesus came to me and protected me and loved me and showed himself to me before I even knew him when I was an enemy of God, when he put it on people's hearts to pray for my salvation, when he reoriented my entire universe so that I could come to the saving knowledge of Christ. Your salvation is a great miracle and you shouldn't discount it. We shouldn't discount it. So Jesus, he gets baptized and then he... Um, he does, you know, well, you know, he does the Jesus stuff, right? He heals the sick. He preaches the gospel of the kingdom. There's an amazing following. Then he preaches a specific message that's a little hard to hear. And then he doesn't have so much of an amazing following. It's a fascinating subject. And he knows he's going to die. And he's got his disciples around him. And we see some of the most vulnerable 
parts of who Jesus is. We find it in John 17. And he's having this little prayer meeting where he's praying with and for the disciples. And this is what he says. This is titled The Desperation. This is John 17, 22 to 23. The glory, remember he's talking to the Father, the glory which you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one just as us, we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and key in on this and loved them even as you have loved me. For a long time, I didn't even know that verse was in there. Do you, do you realize what he just said? That God loves you the way that he loves Jesus with just as much fervency, passion, and desire as he has for Jesus, he has it for you. It's, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. He makes this statement and loved them even as you have loved me. Here's the lie. Here's the lie that a lot of Christians believe. That the Father tolerates us because of Jesus. That the Father tolerates us because of Jesus. Now look, man, I've been so guilty of this. Some of us actually think that God's like the wicked stepfather who's out for blood, and Jesus is like our elder brother who steps in and takes our whipping instead. That's not what happened. That's not, that's not, that's, the father actually loves you as much as he loves Jesus. And he demonstrated it in the most powerful way possible. He sent his son to die for you. God initiated the plan. It's not like you had an angry God up there and Jesus was like, hey, um, I'm just gonna die for them so that you don't kill them. That's not how that worked. God sent his son to die. Now get this. Christopher and I were talking about this at one point. Why on earth did God feel like he had to send his son? Think about it. God can do whatever he wants to do, however he wants to do it. He chose the plan of redemption to look exactly like it looks. He thought through every little detail. And the whole point was this is going to win their heart. This is the thing. This is the best chance I have at winning all of their hearts. I'm going to send my son. Now, look, here's the deal. I love all of you. I do. I'd probably give my life for you. If somebody came in here with a gun and said, somebody's got to die, I'll raise my hand. But you know what I won't do? I won't say, shoot my son instead. I don't love anybody like that. Can you imagine how gut-wrenching it must have been for the father? He sent his son, his only son, to be torn apart for us not just so that his wrath would be appeased, but that our hearts would be one. It's fascinating, man. I just, I can't believe that the Lord would do that for us. God is not the angry father who's looking for every excuse to smite you, man. I tell people all the time, like God didn't send Jesus to die just so he could shake his finger at you. He didn't go through all the stuff that he went through, the agony of watching his son be mutilated. He didn't go through that just to maintain his anger. That's not how it works. God loves you like he loves Jesus. And so that there actually, there becomes like a, a, an application for this. I want you to notice as you read the scripture, how the father interacts with the son and how the son interacts with the father. And I want you to mirror your relationship to that. That's what your relationship with the father is supposed to be like. Shocking. It's shocking. I, th I think it's actually really interesting, um, just a little side note, that uh, Jesus would say this. He would say, he would answer the Pharisees. They'd ask him, what's the greatest commandment? Right? Remember what he said? He goes, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. I don't think we ever really give any thought to that. But do you realize that that's actually, like, that that's what God does? You see, because Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Right? Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And so God, this is what he does. He says, I'm going to love my neighbor, you, as I love myself, Jesus. 
I and the Father are one. I always thought that was just fascinating that, uh, yeah, I don't know, I just think that's really neat. Jesus actually loves us like he loves himself. I don't know why. I don't get it. Here's the next point. Um, the desperation. I'm sorry, we're moving from the desperation to the propitiation. Now, that's a word. I actually say that wrong all the time. I think it's pronounced propitiation, but I can't stop saying propitiation, whatever. Some of you don't know that term. It's a theological term, I suppose, but uh, he talks about it all throughout the New Testament, and that was Jesus' substitutional death for us, making us right and reconciled with the Father. And so Jesus, he's now moved from this prayer meeting where he's crying out, Lord, that they would understand that you love them like you love me. And he moves to the cross. And this is where I want to spend most of our time. He moves to the cross. I'm going to read to you a lot of Bible real quick, if that's okay. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10. I thought about just preaching and laying out the actual gospel, but I think it says it so, so beautifully. Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to jump around so that I don't lose your attention a little bit. Um, we're going to go from Hebrews 10, 1, 4 to 9 through 14 to 8, 22. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and it's not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had their consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now stop there for a second. This is what Jesus, this is what the, the, the author of Hebrews is saying. He's trying to get them to understand that the law can never take away your sins. Remember the sacrificial system? They would sacrifice, right, bulls and goats, and they'd sacrifice the perfect lamb, and, and you had to do that to cleanse yourself from your sins. And he's trying to make the case here that that never actually cleansed you from your sins. And he's brilliant because this is what he says. He says, yeah, here's how you know, because you had to keep offering them over and over and over again. So they never took away your sins. They just served as a reminder of your sins. Because if they had taken away your sins, you would have done them once and it would have been over. And it goes on to say this. He takes away the first order, that is the law, to establish the second. By this, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Oh, now, this is so good. Verse 18 now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offerings for sin. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest who can now sympathize and is merciful with us, right, over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Oh, I could read that over and over and over again. <clears throat> you want to know what the lie that we're tackling right now is? This is I'm telling you, this is where people live, man. That we as born-again believers must pay penance for our sins. That we as born-again believers must pay penance for our sins. Now, some of you aren't familiar with that language. Some of you who maybe had a Catholic background, you totally get what I'm talking about. You see, penance is your way of expunging your own record. And what would happen, they'd have the, in, in, in like the Catholic faith, for instance, they have the, the, the sacraments of penance. And you would go to a priest in a confessional and you would confess your sin to the priest who would then, depending upon your varying degree of sin, would give you something to do. Often they will be 
they're called Our Fathers or Hail Marys, and they count their rosaries and they pray maybe 10 Hail, Hail Marys and five Our Fathers. And upon completion of that task, you are officially forgiven of your sins. Now raise your hand if that sounds ludicrous to you. Yeah, yeah that's crazy. Yet we all do the exact same thing. You're like, no, I don't. I, I don't do that. Oh, we all pay penance for our sins, but our penance looks much different. Our penance looks much more spiritual. Ours is like this. Yeah, I actually can't approach the throne of grace boldly until I have maybe read the word more consistently or until I've fasted or until I've gone a week without looking at pornography. I can't possibly approach the throne boldly until... I've done my time and served my time with shame and guilt. And we all do the same thing. Now listen to me. This is like so prevalent. If you do that, congratulations, you just became your own savior. What you're in effect saying is what Jesus did for you, it actually wasn't good enough that you still need a continual sacrifice year by year so that you can approach the throne of grace boldly in your own strength. And you exchange Jesus and he's no longer your savior and he's no longer good enough. Listen to me, Paul would talk about this in Galatians and he would say, if somebody preaches that, let him be accursed. He actually says that thought is witchcraft. It's witchcraft, let him be accursed who has bewitched you, you foolish Galatians. Having begun in the spirit, are you now being perfected in the, faith, or in the flesh? And I'm just telling you, man, listen, do you know, where you, get your, you know where you get your confidence to approach the throne? Jesus, his sacrifice, it was sufficient for you. You don't have to feel guilt and shame anymore. I'm not saying don't be convicted. You should be convicted because you love Jesus. But don't try to clean yourself up and fool yourself into thinking you're something you're not. I do it all the time. Listen, can I give you the best advice that every preacher is afraid to give you? When you sin, I don't care how fast it is. I don't care if it's immediately afterwards. Go to the throne of grace. Go to the throne of grace. Repent, apologize. Lord, I'm so sorry. I can't believe I did that. I'm sorry. You don't have to hide anymore. You don't get to be Adam anymore. Now listen, man, you see the brilliance of the enemy here. Like it's just, he's just, he's stupid smart. Here's what we do. We, we sin. And now here's, now just think about this. Okay? So God, from the whole beginning, from the, from the very beginning, all God really wanted was family, right? That's really all he wanted. He was like, I'm gonna make more kids, right? I'm gonna dwell in complete and total unity with them. It's gonna be awesome. I'm gonna make more children. They're gonna be like me, but they definitely are not gonna be divine, but they're gonna be in my image. And I'm gonna love them and they're gonna love me and it's gonna be pure and holy and wonderful. And then here's what the enemy does, right? You get born again, you get born again back into that reality, right? And you're like, yes, we're family, this is wonderful. You've now been reconciled. And the enemy knows that he can't change the way that God feels about you. And he also knows that he can't change your place in heaven. He knows where you stand before the Father Here's what the enemy does. He's always wanted to rob God of that which he wants, which is a family. And so the enemy will do this. He'll hit you with guilt and shame, make you run away and hide from the father, thereby robbing God of the one thing that he wanted, which was pure relationship and communion with you. God will still follow you. God will still pursue you. But most of us, we just run. And then we kind of clean ourselves up and we go to Jesus and we're like, yeah, we're good. There's no need to talk about that sin that we just did like two weeks ago. when you don't understand that the very thing that's going to cause you to overcome sin is be in the presence of God. The very thing that's going to cause you not to stumble and not to sin is making much to do of his kindness and his grace and his glory. And I'll prove it to you. This is Romans chapter 5. I'm sorry, this is Romans chapter two. He says this, he says, uh, he says, for you've made light the kindness of God 
not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up for yourself wrath on the day of judgment. That verse is so insightful because he starts out like this. He says, you've made light the kindness of God. You've made light the kindness of God. You've turned the kindness of God, which is a really magnificent, wonderful thing, and you've made it into something very small, not knowing that that's actually the thing that's going to provoke your heart to repentance. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, because you refuse to believe that God's as kind and good as he says he is, you're storing up for yourself wrath on the day of judgment. And that's what we do. That's what the enemy does. He gets us to make light the kindness of God, thinking that God's just really angry with us all the time. So we spend no time with the Lord, and we make God's kindness into a small thing. And then we start hardening our hearts towards God. And next thing you know, we're in flat-out rebellion. The only thing that should give you confidence to draw near to God is the blood of Jesus. And for those of you who are found in Christ Jesus, there is no longer any condemnation Then we go from the propitiation to the justification. The justification. Romans 4 says that he was delivered over to death for our sins and, when raised, and was raised to life for our justification. He was raised to life for our justification. I'm going to read to you something that uh, I just, it's always struck me, it's just beautiful. It's Romans chapter 5. He says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man. Though perhaps for the good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. It's really good news. Listen, here's the lie that Christians buy about the justification. We just read it. Paul's talking about it there. Most of us think that the rules changed on us when we got saved. We forget that while we were enemies, God died for us and that our sin wasn't an issue then. Our sin didn't keep God, our, our sin didn't keep God from pursuing us then. Right? And we often feel like it was easier for God to forgive our sins when we were an enemy and set ourselves up against him when we were hostile in mind, Colossians says than when you're a son or a daughter and you're found in him. And we look at the gospel and we genuinely think that the rules have changed, that God was like, okay, you didn't know what you were doing then, so you get a free pass, but now, now, you have no excuse. And your sin's much harder to forgive now. And that's just not true. Now, here's the deal. You have no excuse because you have the Holy Spirit living within you and you don't have to sin anymore. Glory to God. Do you have any idea what good news that is? Can we just stop and take a moment? All the things that in life that bring death, shame, guilt, condemnation, you don't have to do them. You've got the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. You don't have to be a slave to your sin nature anymore. Man, that's good news. I'm telling you. That's like people move past that too. That's really good news. But we genuinely think that when we got saved, now all of a sudden God's really tightening the belt. Now it's like, man, if you sin, it's 10 times worse. And he says this. I'm going to read it again. In light of that, I want to to read it again. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more than having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. We think that it's harder for God to forgive sin post-Jesus, post-salvation, than it is for him to forgive sin pre-Jesus. And that's just not the case. Jesus died for all of your sin, all of it. Past, present, and future past, present, and future. Now, what I don't want you to hear is, well, that means I get to go out and do whatever the heck I want to do. If that's your response to that, then you don't know Jesus. I'm just going to tell you. If your response is, man, what great love I've been shown, I guess I should just abuse it, you don't know Jesus. I'm telling you. 
And for you, I would continue in Hebrews chapter 10 where he says this, for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for our sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and a fury of a fire that will consume the adversaries. And he goes on to say something along the lines of you've trampled underfoot the son of God and insulted the spirit of grace. So that's the, that's the harsh part, right? I always like to give that though, for those of you who hear this message of like, oh, God's forgiven all of my sins. I'm really good. I just get to approach God all willy nilly and my sin doesn't matter. Well, that's not necessarily the case either. But you probably don't feel like that. Most of you in this room, you think about how much the Lord loves you. You think about how you get to approach the throne of grace boldly because of everything that Jesus did, not because you did. You think about his, the, his grace that he would cover your sins, that he would set you free from the dominion of sin. You think about that and your heart is provoked towards repentance. And that's the place that you want to be. I want to I go over those lies real quick. Just so you really get them, man. The first lie that I think Christians believe is that God doesn't understand our frailty. He does. As Chuck Swindoll says it, he says, God is mindful that he made you out of a few pounds of garden soil. The second lie is this, that in the sight of the Lord, your salvation is secondary to your good works. And to that, I would tell you, you've already accomplished the greatest thing you'll ever accomplish. You said yes. The third lie is this, that the Father tolerates us because of Jesus. And we know that it was actually God's good pleasure that he came after us, that he sent his son to die. That he willingly dealt with the anguish and the pain to win your heart. That God actually initiated this whole thing. He doesn't just tolerate you, he celebrates you, he rejoices over you. The fourth lie was this, that we must pay penance for our sins. And the fifth was that the rules changed once we got saved. Once you were reconciled to the, once you were reconciled to God, you're covered. Here's what I want to do. Worship band, can you guys go ahead and come up? Is the worship band, are they here? They'll come on up. If you guys will just stand with me, I just want to pray. And um, I don't really have like a, a benediction or a, a response thing kind of closed out. What I, what I do want to do though is, is I just want to pray for those of you who... Um, I don't know, man, perhaps the, one of these lies is where you've been living. Maybe it's, maybe it's the penance one. Maybe you feel like you have to clean yourself up before you can go to the Lord, not knowing that you only get to go to the Lord because of Jesus. Maybe you have honestly felt like the Father's just angry at you all the time and just tolerates you because of Jesus. I don't know, but if that's you, um, we're not going to do an altar call. I just want to pray for you. Um, worship team, if you guys could just play behind me and you guys can respond however you want to respond, whenever you want to respond. Um, but I'm so grateful that you became flesh. God, you didn't have to do that. You could have done anything, but you chose to become flesh so that you could sympathize with us, so that you could show yourself to be a merciful and faithful high priest. You are made like the brethren in all things and you overcame sin, you overcame the grave, you overcame temptation, you never sinned. You put yourself through shame and humiliation just for us. And we say right now, God, that your sacrifice, it was good enough for us. And we're so sorry. We're so sorry for making ourselves our own savior. We're so sorry for thinking that your sacrifice wasn't actually good enough. We're so sorry. Jesus. I just wanna repent even right now for making your kindness into something very small, not knowing that that's the thing that's actually gonna provoke my heart to repent. God, for moving away from the hope of the gospel. God, while I was an enemy, while I was an enemy, you came for me. While I was hostile in mind, you came for me. And you continue coming for me every time I sin and every time I mess up. That hasn't changed. 
Thank you, Jesus, that you would come to show us that the Father loves us like he loves you. That that was so important, that that was so important to you that we know that, that you recorded it in Scripture. And Lord, I thank you that because of your sacrifice, you sent the Holy Spirit to dwell within our hearts, to, to dwell within our spirits, to enable us and empower us to never say yes to sin again. That you've cured us. That that thing that brings death and pain and destruction, you've removed it. Do you feel like the Lord would say to some of you that you've thought about God as a pessimist and he's actually quite optimistic? That he's not looking at all the things that you're doing wrong and highlighting those, that he actually looks at you and says, yeah, but you're doing all of these things right too. Jesus, it's because of you that we have confidence to draw near to God. We love you, Jesus.